The following audio is for Emmanuel Baptist Church. More information about Emmanuel is available at our website, www.myemmanuel.net. I want to ask you, if you would, to join me in Acts chapter 5. We're studying the book of Acts together. It's the incredible history recorded to us by Dr. Luke, who writes the Gospel of Luke, and then writes this as a sequel for us so that we would know something about the history of the early church and what God was doing. And it begins in Acts chapter 1 by Jesus telling the disciples that they would be his witnesses in Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. But he tells them to wait in Jerusalem because they're going to need the power of the Holy Spirit to do this. And we we enter a new dispensation. Dispensation is a great big theological word that just says we enter a a new period of time in which God, prophesied by His Son Jesus, is going to begin to function differently than He ever has before. The Old Testament was a time that was an emphasis on the Heavenly Father and the holiness of the Father and the Almighty Father. And then, of course, the coming of the Messiah. And Jesus is here, and the Gospels record His work where He goes to the cross for us and accomplishes everything that could not be accomplished in the Old Testament law. But then Jesus would say, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. I'm, I'm going to go and I'm going to send you. And, and uh, the Holy Spirit has a, a number of names in the New Testament. He's going to send us a comforter. He's going to send us a teacher. He's going to send us a guide. But he's going to send us maybe the best name of the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus. He's going to send us Jesus in spirit. When Jesus was here on earth, he took on the form of flesh so that like every single person on the planet, you can only be in one place at one time. Sometimes people are going to be gone from church and they say, Pastor, but I'll be there in spirit. I said, no, you won't. Your spirit can only be where your body is. It's the, it's the limitations that God's given us. And so, and so your, your spirit's only where your body is, but... Jesus goes back to heaven so that his spirit can be everywhere at once and he can indwell every single believer. Think of this promise that Jesus Christ himself indwells you. And the biblical teaching of that in the New Testament is that your body becomes the temple of God, the temple of the Holy Spirit of God. And so the Holy Spirit does fall on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. And the numbers of the believers swell from 120 to 3,120. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John heal the lame man there. And because of that incredible healing, so many come around. Peter preaches again, and the Scripture says that the number increases from 3,120 to 8,120. And 5,000 more are saved. And so... When we come to Acts chapter 5, the first part of it stands in stark contrast to what we've been reading because Acts chapter 5 is the unmasking of religious sin. It's different than the healing of the lame man. It's different than the sermon on the day of Pentecost. It's different than the stories of 8,000 people being saved. It's the story of one couple in the church who sinned against God, and it's a, 
It's a sobering story for us. Now, you would say, well, why should we be surprised at a story that unmasks religious sin? Any uh, even superficial student of the Word of God would recognize that Jesus preached against religious sin quite frequently. In fact, his harshest and hardest sermons recorded in the Gospels are always against the religious establishment. He, he calls them names. He calls them snakes. He calls them a brood of vipers. He calls them cemeteries that are outwardly adorned and the grass is cut and kept, but inwardly are full of dead men's bones. He calls them the children of the devil. And he says, you're like the devil because he's a liar from the beginning. When he lies, he speaks his native language. He continues to speak against the religious establishment of his days all through the gospel with harsh words and hard sermons. But what Jesus is preaching against are those who are not saved and pretend to be. You know this, do you not? Do you know that you can be religious and lost? Do you know that? Nod your heads. The Apostle Paul is a primary example of this. The Apostle Paul says he, he lived his life to the letter of the law. He, he learned under Gamaliel. He longed to be a part of the Sanhedrin. He got letters from the chief priest to protect his religion. But he was most certainly lost, for when Jesus appears to him on the road to Damascus, he has to ask the question, Who are you, Lord? He does not know the Lord Jesus Christ. Many of you have a very similar testimony. Many of you grew up in churches, and you grew up in churches maybe that didn't preach the gospel or share the gospel, or, or a church that shared the gospel, but you just began to pretend And so there are many who continue to be religious but lost. And Jesus' sermons are primarily to those who are, he calls them, here's another word of Jesus, he calls them hypocrites. They are not what they pretend to be. However, when we get to Acts chapter 5, we are not talking about hypocrites. We're talking about Christians. We're not talking about some unnamed hypothetical situation. These Christians are named in Acts chapter 5. They are Ananias and Sapphira. We get the impression as we read about this that Ananias serves on the first impressions team, that Sapphira serves in children's ministry. We get the impression from their conversation with Peter that they're in Peter's, Simon Peter's life group. These are not hypocrites who are pretending. These are those who are a part of the church. They've been a part of the day of Pentecost. They've been a part of the upper room. They've, been, they've seen the 8,000 people saved. They've been a part of this great expansion of the church of God. They've seen the miracles of God, and they have also seen the very end of chapter 4. Let me just turn your attention to there. The end of chapter 4, verse 36. And so Joseph, who was called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, he was a Levite and a native of Cyprus. He sold a field that belonged to him 
and he brought the money and he laid it at the apostles' feet. They, they saw that happen, and maybe there was a, a time and a place of, uh, of prayer and praise, and, and the prayers included praising God for this beautiful sacrifice that Barnabas makes where he sells property and he brings it and gives it to the disciples. And so we enter Acts chapter 5 with that as our introduction. And the scripture says, But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, they also sold a piece of property. So it's, you see, it's a, it's a continuation of the story. And the, the scripture says in verse 2, And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds, and he brought only a part of it, and he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Now, I want you to understand exactly what the sin is, and we understand it now by Simon Peter's questions. Verse 4, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? Meaning, Simon said, you didn't have to sell this property. There's no one in the church that said, there wasn't a campaign that said, everybody go sell your property and bring that money in for our, for our building campaign. That, that, that's not what was going on here. It was his property. He could, he, could, he, could, uh, he could keep it. He could sell it. He asked a second question, and he said, uh, after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? The second question indicates that when Ananias sold the property, he didn't have to bring any of it to the church. It was not his obligation to bring any of it at all to the church, but he did sell it. And he did bring it, and what he did, his sin was, he conveyed to everyone that he sold the property for a certain amount of money, and he brought the entirety of that money to the church. And so one uh, last question from Simon Peter, what is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You haven't lied to men, you've lied to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down dead. Would you just pause and think about that just for a second? This isn't a religious hypocrite who is uh, preaching the gospel and, and then uh, living like the devil the rest of his life. This isn't a man who's guilty of murder. He's not guilty of adultery. He's not guilty of what we would consider some of the more heinous crimes. It says nothing here about sexual abuse or being a sexual predator. It says nothing about sex trafficking. He sold property for a certain amount of money, and he told the apostles, he told the leadership of the church that he was bringing the whole amount in. And he fell down dead. If you read it like a Sunday school story, I guess you can just continue to pass over this. But if you read it for what it is, it should, dear brother, dear sister, it should stop you in your tracks. 
when he breathed his last, it says, a great fear came upon all those who heard it. That's, that's the appropriate response. If you were a part of this church in Jerusalem and you heard this story, it would cause you to be thinking about all the conversations that you've had. Verse 6 says, the young men rose up, they wrapped him and they carried him out and buried him. And an interval, after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in. No doubt she was looking for her husband. He said he was going to go and take this money to the elders of the church and that he would be back and he didn't return and she arrived not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me, Sapphira, whether you sold the land for so much. And he no doubt shares with her the amount that Ananias told him that he sold the land for. And she said, yes, that's it for that much. And Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? He says, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down dead. These are healthy people. And these, are, these, are, these are not people who, as Peter spoke to them, they suddenly and quite by happenstance had uh, simultaneous heart attacks. They f- fell down dead. And imagine being the young man who was assigned to the burial task of Ananias. And you've gone out. And we know about how long it takes to bury someone in the rocky soil of the Middle East. It, apparently, it's about three hours. And so you come back pretty tired, digging a hole, covering it up. Three hours later, the young men came in and they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And again, verse 11 indicates for us the proper response of all believers everywhere in great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. I have asked myself the question, why is it that the modern American church is not experiencing the power of God and the blessing of God as it should? When we compare the work that we've done in the United States as we might compare it to other places internationally, we discover that in many, many places, the gospel is spreading like wildfire, like it did in the book of Acts. And yet here, we are not keeping up with our population growth. And the United States of America, along with Canada, has become the third largest mission field in the world, only superseded by the billions of China and the billions of India. Only China and India, because of their huge population, are greater in the sheer numbers of lost people than the United States of America. The United States of America, where we have the where the church of God has the greatest resources. In fact, the United States, if you take the resources of the church, the kingdom of God in the United States, we have more than all of the rest of the world combined. We have more buildings, more vehicles, more pastors, more staff, more money than all the rest of the church of God in the world combined. And yet, while we cannot keep up with our own 
population growth, Africa today, the continent of Africa, has become the most Christian continent in the world. It, it is now 75% Christian. And, and that includes the, the northern Africa where there's a, there's a Muslim, a bit of a Muslim stronghold. How is it that the African churches and the African pastors, how is it that the Africans with hardly any resources at all have superseded the Church of America, the country in the world that has the highest percentage of Christians is South Korea. South Korea virtually had no Christians before the Korean War when an American interest in American missionaries went there and it has exploded and become the most Christian country in the world. And by sheer numbers, the most, the most number of Christians in the world will live in China in seven years because the church at China is at work. Not us. Somewhere between 75 and 150 churches in North America will close their doors today. Today that will be the day. They've either already voted on it, and today's the last service, and many of them have very beautiful closing services where everybody even gets to take a brick or a pew home to remember the church of their parents and their grandparents, but they close the doors And some of them, without any fanfare at all, will simply lock the door. They'll put a for sale sign. And churches all over America are becoming uh, uh, hair salons and strip malls and martial arts studios. Those things have happened here in Billings. Why is it that we have no Holy Spirit power? I suggest to you it's because of sins like Ananias and Sapphira were guilty of. I want you to consider from this story, first of all, myths that I believe many American Christians have begun to believe today. Certainly these myths aren't biblical, they're myths. They're lies, more specifically, they're lies from the depths of hell itself. I want you to think about them this morning. I want you to think about them seriously. Myth number one, there's no such thing uh, as a harmless sin, or, or the myth is actually that there is such a thing as a harmless sin. We, we couch it in terms like, like if I tell a lie, and you know I've lied, and I look at you, and you know I've lied, and I know I've lied, what have I got to say? I've got to say, well, it's just a little white lie. Because we convinced ourselves that there, there is such a thing as a harmless sin. There are some sins that just don't hurt anybody at all. I think that there are a whole generation of American men who have come to believe that porn is one of those. Doesn't, doesn't hurt anybody. I can just look at it on my computer or my phone and doesn't really bother anybody, and yet we know that it drives the internet and now drives sex trafficking. 
And there's no such thing as a harmless sin. The, the truth is, the truth is that every sin in your life is sowing seeds of destruction. Every single sin in your life sows seeds of destruction. Now, a sin isn't like a pothole that you fall into. Many of us simply don't take any personal responsibility at all. In fact, when we drive the streets of Billings and we hit one of these potholes that the snow and ice has made, we simply say bad things about the, the, the Billings government. Why haven't they fixed that pothole yet? But we take no personal responsibility at all. As a matter of fact, we might even say, well, if the car next to me and the lane next to me hadn't been so close to me, I would have been able to dodge it and it really, it's really not my fault. And so when we read biblical phrases like, be careful that you don't fall into temptation, we think of it as falling into a pothole and we excuse ourselves. But sin is a choice. And I, and I don't have as much time to discuss this as I would like to, but there is no choice in your life that stands singularly alone. Your, your choices that you make are actually a chain of choices. You, you make a choice, and because you've made a choice, it brings you to another choice. And when you make that choice, it will bring you to another choice. And so there is consequence for sin. And because sins are chains of choices, there are chains of consequence that come for that. The consequence that you bear aren't simply the bad luck of life. You brought it upon yourself. And so we bring it upon ourselves when we rationalize away our sin we, we think, well, we're, we're at least better than our neighbor, that our sins are harmless, and so we continue in them even though they continue to separate us from the will of God, the purpose of God, the power of God, and the blessing of God. And so I think that there will be, in America today, millions who will attend church, but they will not see the Holy Spirit of God fall. Not like on the day of Pentecost, not like in Acts chapter 4 when the lame man is saved. The Holy Spirit of God still falls. He falls in Africa. He falls in China. He falls in Indonesia. He, he falls in South Korea. We can't say, oh, it's a different dispensation. No, the dispensation is called the time of the Holy Spirit. This is when he does fall. It's not abnormal for the Holy Spirit to fall. In this dispensation, it's abnormal for the Holy Spirit not to fall. There must be a reason. And the reason is that we have harbored what we have decided is harmless sin in our own lives. There's a second myth that exists, I think, in the American church today. The myth is that the action is more important than the motive. Or in this particular case, this myth has a twin. The, the twin myth is that the motive is more important than the action. We, we dismiss our actions because our motive was good. We dismiss our motive because our actions are good. Now, 
let's think this through just for a little bit so that we can understand it. Everybody in the room understands that you can have a good motive and a good action. In fact, that's what should happen, right? It goes together. A good motive and a good action. Everybody in the room understands that you can have a bad motive and a bad action. As a matter of fact, that goes together as well. We understand that. We become a little confused and we use our confusion as rationalization when we start to think about the fact that you can have a good motive and a bad action or a bad motive and a good action. Let's talk about them just for a little bit. You can have a good motive and a bad action. Every wife has experienced this with her husband. The husband thinks to himself, I want to do something wonderful for my wife. It's a good motive. And so he's going to wash the clothes. He washes her delicates with his new jeans. And the result is a very bad action. A good motive, a good heart, desiring to do something, it would have been better if he did nothing at all. And all the ladies said, Amen. It's a good motive and a bad action. You can also have a bad motive and a good action. This is that which our politicians have perfected. And this is how you get what you want. The action looks good. I'll, I'll do something for you if you'll just do something for me. I'll vote, for, uh, I'll vote for the new bridge in your district if you'll vote for the new dam in mine. I'll vote for your bill if you'll vote for my bill so I can get what I want. It's a bad motive. Ends up in a good action so that we can manipulate our surroundings. And so not very many of us attain to the standard of a good motive and a good action. I want to remind you, the truth is that God considers the heart and the action. Do you see it? Do you not understand it? God considers the heart and the action. He's an almighty God. He's an infinite God. He has perfect capability of understanding both your heart and your actions. And the idea that you can dismiss your actions because your heart was good or dismiss your heart because your actions were good is foreign to the calling of the believer of Jesus Christ. We are to be pure. We are to be holy. We are to stand in righteousness before the God. We are called to something higher than the rest of the world. Well, among those in America today, there is this uh, ongoing and continual debate about the dispensation that we live in. It's not just called the dispensation of the Holy Spirit, but it's called the dispensation of grace. And so it is. And grace is a wonderful thing. We sing of amazing grace. We sing of marvelous and matchless grace. We enjoy the grace of God. But it leads those of us who desire to rationalize our sin to a third myth. The third myth is that justice was the Old Testament, but now we live in the New Testament in an era of grace, and God will forgive me of my sin. Literally, the idea is that since I know 
that God sent his son to Calvary, since I know that there he died for every single sin of every man, boy, and girl who ever lived, who is living, and who will live. He died for the sins that I haven't even committed yet, and that is a perfectly good biblical doctrine. All of your sins are forgiven, even the ones you haven't committed yet. So I I rationalize, since my sins are already forgiven, God will forgive me what I do. I'll just go ahead and sin. Now, in Romans chapters 5 and 6, Paul would call into account your very salvation. If, if you can get to this place where you are willing to disdain the blood of Jesus, where you are willing to continue in your sin, then Paul would say, then you never received the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit changes us. And one of the changes is I no longer want to sin. I am a different person than I used to be. And I can't sin. And so the truth of the matter is that our holy God is perfectly capable of combining justice with grace so that neither is nullified. That's what happened on the cross. On the cross, God combined justice and grace. Jesus Christ met the criteria of a holy heavenly Father who said, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And at the cross, justice was served. Our sins were not overlooked. God didn't set them aside with a wink and a nod. They were paid for. The ransom of your soul, the sinfulness of your soul, was paid in full by Jesus and his death on the cross. And yet through that event, God, the Father, because your sins are paid for, was able to extend grace to you. You see, God is able to work both in the realm of justice and in the realm of grace without nullifying either or. We think, we think, we talk as if it's an either or deal. We can't put them together in our feeble minds, but God puts them together perfectly. It means then, in terms of everyday application, that the forgiveness of sin does not necessarily alleviate the consequence of sin. I, I want you to think this through with me. For those of us who are rationalizing our sin, who are pretending that we're walking with God when, when we clearly are separated in our fellowship from Him, I, I want you to think through this, that the forgiveness of sin, which God is wonderful in extending to us through grace, does not necessarily alleviate the consequence of sin here on earth. The greatest consequence of sin is separation from God for all eternity in a place called hell. That God gives through salvation. But an everyday application of life, if one from among us breaks the law and then comes to the elders of the church and says, I have broken the law and I I want to pray and ask for God's forgiveness. And with sincere heart and true repentance, they ask God to forgive them. Does God forgive them? Absolutely. Always on every occasion. Does he still have to go stand before the judge? Absolutely he does. Because the forgiveness of sin doesn't necessarily alleviate 
the consequence of sin. And the true reflection of his repentance is that he would go to the judge and say, I'm guilty, and throw himself on the mercy of the court. If an addict who has been pumping uh, pharmaceuticals into his body for years and years comes to Christ and asks for salvation, is he saved? Absolutely. When he when he lifts his head after saying, in Jesus' name, amen, he's most certainly saved, and he's still an addict. He's going to have to beat that. Now he has the power of the Holy Spirit, and for the first time in his life, he has the ability to beat it, but he still has to beat it. If a young girl in our congregation is sexually promiscuous, and she gets pregnant, and she comes with her parents and she comes to the pastors and they, 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 they pray for, for uh, forgiveness. And with real repentance and real reconciliation, they, they want God's forgiveness. Does God extend that to her? Absolutely. Through the cross, through the blood of Jesus Christ, he extends his forgiveness to every single one of us. When we get done praying, is she still pregnant? Yeah. Listen very carefully, my friends. Your sins are choices. And they are not punctiliar. They are not isolated events. They come together in a, in a string of choices. With Ananias and Sapphira, they, they conspired together. They sold the land. They kept it back. And then they both told lies later on to Peter. There's a whole series of sins here. Because one sin begets another and the consequences beget more consequences. So as there are a series of sins, there are a series of consequences. And many of us live powerless Christian lives because we are wrapped in the chains of the consequences of our choices. And that's why we don't experience the movement of God. There's more in this chapter, but I only have time for one more myth. And it's one that I... I want to speak to expressly. The myth is this, that God, God won't expose my sin because, well, if He exposed my sin, it would damage good people. If God exposed my sin, it would, it would damage a, a, a good family. It would damage a good church. Emmanuel's a good church. People are saved here. People are baptized here. Marriages are put back together here. Children are brought to their parents here. They are discipled in the nurture, the admonition of the Lord. God certainly won't expose my sin and damage my family and damage my church and damage His reputation. It's as, it's as if you've got God over a barrel. You, you are not going to be able to be caught. If God were to expose your sin, He would hurt His own kingdom. Listen very carefully to the truth, not to the myth, but to the truth. The truth is that God loves you so much. He is willing to root out the sin of your heart at all costs. He loves you so much. To, to let you continue in your sin is not an act of love. No earthly father would allow his child to continue in sin if he could stop it. That's not an act of love. An act of love 
is to stop it, is to root it out, is to expose it. And because He loves you so much, He will root out your sin at all costs, even the death of His Son. Think about it. Think about it carefully. Your sin cost the Heavenly Father His one and only Son. That's what salvation costs. That's what your salvation costs. Do you think that there is something else greater that God the Father could give? And if he's already given that which is the greatest gift, he's willing to root out your sin at all costs to you because there is no earthly cost compared to eternity. Listen to my words carefully. God doesn't care if you lose your job. Your job doesn't mean anything in terms of eternity. God doesn't care if you lose your fortune. Your 401k, it's, what, what is it compared to one part of the streets of gold? God, God wants to save your marriage. God wants your marriage to be good, but your soul even worth more than the marriage. You may lose your marriage. You may lose your children because God's trying to save your soul. Do not think that the bad things that happen to you are simply bad luck or that they all belong to Satan. They are very often the discipline of the Lord. And what do we know from Scripture? Whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. I'm out of time. Let me just speculate just a little bit. I believe that if Ananias and Sapphira were unbelievers, they might have lived through this experience because God's desire is not that any should perish and that all would come to salvation. I actually believe that because he loved them, he took them. I believe because he loved his church, he took them. I believe that's the love of God. Start to understand things with eternal eyes. Quit seeing things with earthly eyes like those who don't even know Christ. Look at them through the template of your Bible, through the Word of God. If they were unbelievers, he could have given them longer to come to salvation. But they weren't. They knew better. They were part of the church. They were bought with the blood. And God still moves like this today. By way of benediction, uh, just a few scriptures from Romans chapter 6. We have been united with him in death, so we will certainly be united with him in resurrection. For the one who has died has set us free from sin. Now, we've died with Christ. We believe that we will also live with Christ. So, you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ. This is the key for our lives, is it not? We, we've been given the, the most beautiful, the most precious gift of eternal life. We've been given the shed blood of Jesus who has died for us and separated us from sin. So we must make ourselves, here it is again, dead to sin and alive to God.
Thank you for listening to audio from Emmanuel Baptist Church, located in Billings, Montana. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Emmanuel, please visit us online at www.myemmanuel.net.